I've been talking about uh, the importance of not forgetting the wonder of Christmas the last couple of weeks. And I think Spurgeon says it well when he says, infinite and infant. Oh, the wonder of Christmas. But he goes on and he says, there's nothing little in God. His mercy is like himself. It is infinite. You cannot measure it. And so obviously what we have in the celebration of Christmas, which we call the incarnation, where uh, the divine nature adds to itself the human nature, we highlight the fact that not only is there the wonder of God becoming man, but the wonder of why he became man, that we might be saved from our sin and reconciled to God. I'd like to read for us just verses 10 through 13 this morning of John chapter 1. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Christmas time is a wonderful time, but it can be a stressful time. And the reason for that is um, sort of reflected in an article written by C.S. Lewis when he wrote an article entitled, What Christmas Means to Me. And he said, Christmas... Uh, comes in three forms. It comes in the form of the religious holiday where Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus, uh, the sending of a Savior for us. And he says, uh, we as Christians are obligated to worship God in light of that in a proper sense. But he also says that Christmas is... (laughs) Excuse me. A popular holiday... Um, where people get together that aren't necessarily Christians. And they get together and they have parties and they celebrate the, the season and they enjoy uh, family time and things like that. But he says there's a third aspect of it, and this is the one that he really has the most trouble with. Obviously, he supports Christians celebrating the birth of Jesus. And he actually supports the idea of people getting together and merrymaking, as he calls it. But he says the third thing is the commercial racket of uh, Christmas. And so he talks about the fact that um, there are certain grounds on which he condemns that aspect of Christmas. And the first ground is, he says, it gives, on the whole, much more pain than pleasure. And so he talks about the whole issue of having to buy gifts and spending so much time looking for gifts and trying to figure out what we're going to give and how we ultimately can get worn out by the season because of those kinds of things. He says that people oftentimes at the end of Christmas look far more as if there had been a long sickness in the house. He goes on to say that the gift giving that we see at Christmas time is, he would say, mostly involuntary. And what he means by that is, he says this, there's this unspoken rule that if someone gives you something or you think they're going to give you something, then you have to give them something. And he says all of us have experienced 
um, not giving somebody something and they give us something and we feel like we have to run out and buy something and, and give it to them. Uh, then he goes on to talk about the fact that a lot of times at Christmas we buy things that we would never buy any other time of the year. And we buy things for people that we would never buy for ourselves. And he talks about gaudy gadgets and, and things like that. And so he says that are we doing all this to simply satisfy the shopkeepers? Are we just trying to help them finish the year well? And then the last thing is, he says, there's so many things that we normally have to do around Christmas time that it's a nuisance having to add all these other things on to them. Well, obviously, he took a very uh, low view of the issue of gift giving, and he saw it as simply being, you know, um, a ploy by Hallmark and a ploy by the, the shops to sell more stuff before the end of the year. But I do think it's worth thinking about in terms of how we look at our own gift giving. Um, do we see it as an obligation or an opportunity? We shouldn't see gift giving as an obligation. We should see it, though, as an opportunity to express our love and our gratitude. Um, the question is, when we give something, do we think we're trying to make a statement of the person's value? If you are, you'll never buy them enough because you can't put a value on a human life. But is it a statement of your love for them, your gratitude for them? That's the question. And it brings us to the third question. Are um, the things we're doing at Christmas time, putting our focus on gifts, material gifts, or is it helping us to think about the gift? And that's why I've entitled this, Don't Forget the Wonder of Christmas, because... C.S. Lewis is highlighting the fact that it's very easy for us to be caught up in the commercial racket of Christmas and the expectations and the obligations and all that we have to do at Christmas time that we don't really have much energy to think about Christ and celebrate Christ and, and really honor him as we should. And so what we've been trying to do is look at John uh, 1 verse 12 especially. And try to break that down for us. And in John 1.12, John says, But as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And we focused the first week on the issue of a name. We talked about the fact that the name in the Bible isn't simply about distinguishing you know, one person from another. It's basically about telling us something about that person. I mentioned the seven dwarves, and you've got Dopey, and you've got Sneezy, and you've got Grumpy. And so if you have coffee with them, you know what you're getting, right? Or if you look at the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan talks about Mr. Fearing, Mr. Self-Will, Mr. Despondency, Mr. Worldly Wise Man, Mr. Contrite, Mr. Great Heart, Mr. Valiant for Truth. And so again, their names say something about them either positive or negative. And that's why we have emphasized in the Bible believing in the name of Jesus and thinking about what is the name on the manger? What is uh, the character of this baby who became a man and did what he did? 
And if you just look at John chapter 1, we looked at a lot of things the last couple of weeks, but let me just focus on John chapter 1, which uh, Gabe and Hope highlighted. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the, the, one of the names on the manger is the Word. And a word is something that tells you, it reveals what you cannot see. You can't see what I'm thinking. You can't know what I'm feeling. You can't know what my heart is. The whole idea of, if you read on in John chapter 1, it says, uh, the word Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. That's a picture of being as close to a person as you can be. That's a picture of, actually knowing the secrets of that person's heart. And so what John is saying in John chapter 1 is, Jesus is the one who reveals the heart of God as full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And so we see that in this chapter. We also see later on in the chapter where John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in verse 29. So another name on the manger is the Lamb of God. Uh, What does the Lamb do? Well, in that context, the Lamb was part of the sacrificial system. And many people believe that the shepherds were guarding the temple flocks on the night that Jesus was born. And that those lambs that they... Uh, guarded were going to ultimately be sacrificed in the temple. And that one reason why God spoke to the shepherds and told them about the birth of Jesus is because of his role as our substitute. Because a lamb dies in the place of someone else. And Jesus came to die in our place and save us from our sin. The third thing that we see, the third name that could be put on the, the manger is King. We see that later on in John chapter 1, in verse 49, Nathanael is talking to Jesus. And he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, I'm not. He says, you're right. Did you believe just because I told you that I saw you? And so Jesus is revealed as the King. And a King is someone who's in charge. A King is someone who gives commands, but he also makes promises to his people. And so when we sing songs like, What Child Is This? We're asking, what's the name on the manger? And the song says, What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard And angels sing. And so the song identifies right away that the name on the manger is the king that Israel was looking for. The question is, knowing the name of someone, what is it supposed to do? Well, it should either cause us to run as far away from them as we can. If we really know their character, if we really know what they're like, if we know what we're getting and it's not good. We should run away as far as we can. But if it's the, the name of Jesus, then it's reflected in Psalm 9:10, where it says, those who know your name will put their trust in you. Those who really know 
who Jesus is and what Jesus is and what he promises to be for us will put their trust in him. The second thing that we talked about was in light of the importance of not forgetting the name on the manger was to realize that we don't want to forget that receiving is believing. A lot of people, as I said, as C.S. Lewis highlighted, celebrate the religious holiday or celebrate even the popular secular holiday in such a way that Jesus isn't received at all. He might be talked about, he might be mentioned, he might be thought of in some sense, but he's not truly received. And the context of John 1 says he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him, which is an amazing thing. The very one who created everything was walking among us and nobody saw that, believed that. He came to his own, which means the Jewish people. He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. Some of them did, but most of them did not. I've shared before the story of the young man who graduates from uh, college. And he really wants a really nice sports car for graduation. His dad's very wealthy. And you may have heard the story where he asks his dad, I don't want anything else but this sports car. And his dad, on the day of his graduation, calls him in and tells him how much he loves him and how proud of him that he is. And he gives him um, a wrapped uh, present. And the young man unwraps the present. And it's a Bible. And as you might recall, he throws the Bible down. And he says, I can't believe with all that you have, all the money you have, that all you get me is this Bible. And he leaves. And he never sees his dad again until his dad dies. And he's notified that his dad has died and that his dad has left all the estate to him. And so he goes back and he finds this Bible and he reads the verse that his dad had underlined, which said, uh, Matthew seven eleven, And if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father, which is in heaven, give uh what is good to those who ask him. And so as he's reading that verse, all of a sudden a key with a tag on it drops out of the back of the Bible. And that key is the key to the very car that he wanted his dad to give him. And on the key it says paid in full. And so the question is, what is the point of the story? The point of the story is the father was pursuing the heart's desire of the son But the son didn't understand it. He didn't believe it. He didn't believe it was really the father's heart to bless him and to give him his heart's desire. And therefore, he didn't want to have anything to do with his father. Now, what does that have to do with Christmas? Well, if you read Matthew chapter 2, you find a different account. You have Luke 2, where this beautiful picture of the shepherds going to see Jesus at his birth. In Matthew 2, you have a very different picture. You have the wise men coming into Jerusalem, and they say, we are here um, to find the king. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Herod, who is the king, the, the earthly king of that region at that time, 
It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. He was troubled. It wasn't good news. Why wouldn't it be good news that this person has been born king? It wouldn't be good news if you thought that for someone else to be king would make you very, very unhappy. You could argue that the pregnancy of Mary and the delivery of Jesus was the most unwanted pregnancy ever. We talk about unwanted pregnancies. Well, the reality is that Herod goes on and he kills uh, the children in the area of Bethlehem two years and under because he's trying to get rid of Jesus. And he does that because he wants to be king. And he doesn't believe that the king that was coming really had his best interest at heart. And so what we see happening over and over in Scripture is a questioning of the God who gives his son to be our king. There's a parable that Jesus uh, tells in Luke 19 in which he talks about a nobleman who goes away to receive a kingdom. And he says that there are those uh, in that kingdom that don't want him to be king. It says, Jesus is talking, he says, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, many of the parables in the New Testament are parables meant to speak to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And so if you look at the context of this parable in Luke 19, right before the parable, you have the story of Zacchaeus, who gets up in a tree because he wants to see Jesus. And Jesus says that um, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, which means he was the kind of king that was out to save us, not out to destroy us. And then after this parable, you see an account of um, Jesus going into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And so what's the point of Jesus riding on a donkey? Well, the Bible says that he would go into Jerusalem on a donkey because he was expressing his gentleness and his lowliness. What does that mean? That means he doesn't have a heart as king to simply have his own way without any regard to how it affects those he rules over. That's what it means. And then it goes on from there where Jesus, it says, he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it. And why was that? And he goes on to say that there was an army that was going to come in They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. What visitation? The incarnation. Jesus showing up as the God-man. They did not recognize it in the sense they did not receive it. They refused to receive Jesus as their king and it resulted in the destruction of 
Jerusalem. So the question is, why should we receive Jesus as our king? Why would it be better for me to actually submit my life to him and let him rule over me than me just ruling over myself? Don't I know best? Well, actually, we don't. And if you look at what the Bible tells us over and over again, it tells us that God promises us that he will be all that we could ever need and he will be all that we could ever desire. That's what it means in the Old Testament when it talks about Yahweh, the great I am. I am all that you will ever need. I am all that you could ever desire. I've read this before too. There's a, um, a preacher uh, called S.M. Lockridge. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he does a great job of painting for us the reason why we would be foolish not to receive Jesus as our king. He says, my king was born king. The Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. Now, that's my king. Well, I wonder if you know him. Do you know him? He says, my king is the only one whom there are no means of measure that can define his limitless love. He says he's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you could choose to call him. He supplies strength for the weak. He sympathizes and he saves. He's strong and he guides. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. Well, I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He had no predecessor and he'll have no successor. There's nobody before him and there will be nobody after him. You can't impeach him and he's not going to resign. That's my king. He says a lot more, but he says it well. And he says, basically, if this is really true of Jesus, then we'd be foolish to think that we could be happier without him. That we'd be foolish not to receive our king. And yet it takes a work of God's grace in our hearts to do just that. John 1.13 says, Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It takes a work of God in our hearts to open our eyes to see King Jesus, not as a threat like Herod saw him, but as everything my heart desires. It takes a work of God. The question is, though, I want to finish with this. How then should we live if we receive such a king, if he really is everything the Bible says he is, 
as was described by S.M. Lockridge so very well. How should we live? Well, Matthew 18.3 says, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are converted and become like children. And that's my third point, is don't forget to act like a child. Not to be childish, but to be childlike. It says in John 1.12, But as many as received him, those who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Many of you probably have seen the movie The Polar Express. Someone talks about that movie and they say one of the strengths of the movie is that it shows uh, a child's eye view of the world. The Lord Jesus says we need to have a child's eye view of the world. Um, Jan actually keeps a, a book of all the interesting and funny things that our kids have said over the years uh, growing up. A couple of these I'll just mention. Um, one time we were running, uh, riding down the road and there were these two guys in a convertible. They, both of them uh, had bald heads. But one of them had a tattoo on the back of his head. And one of our children uh, said, Look, Mommy, someone wrote on the back of that man's head. <laughs> a child's view of life. Then we were eating dinner one time, and one of our children picked up a, uh, it was probably a, a drumstick or something, and said, this is my body, eat ye all of it. <laughs> I love the fact that children can say some pretty funny things, amazing things. But it gives us an insight into what they're thinking about. It gives us an insight into how they look at the world. And the question is, um, at Christmas time, do you ever think about what your childhood was like at Christmas time? Now, for some people, it was a wonderful time. For other people, it was a very difficult time, depending on the circumstances in which they grew up. And so not everyone has a wonderful um, childhood memory of various things. But for those who do, they often think about the fact it would be nice, in some sense, to be a child again. To be a child in the sense of not having the weight of the world on my shoulders. Uh, Being able to uh, look at life in such a way that I can enjoy life without being afraid of what's coming next. If you look at the book of John, uh, what we have in the book of John, John gives seven things that Jesus did to say that he is the Messiah King that Jesus promised. One thing he did was he turned water into wine. And the question is, would you and I act more like a child if we believe that our Father and our King were able and willing to turn everything into joy for us? That's the picture of turning water into wine. It's turning everything in life into joy. Uh, Jesus heals the royal official's son who is on the verge of death. Would you and I act more like a child if we believe that our father and king uh, were able and willing to heal ultimately all that ails us? Another thing that Jesus does to testify to who he is is he heals a disabled man at the pool 
of Bethesda. Would you and I act more like a child if we believe that our Father and King were able and willing to enable us to do what we can't do on our own? He feeds the 5,000. Would you and I act more like a child if we believe that our Father and King were able and willing to meet all our daily needs regardless of the circumstances? Regardless of even if we had a job. Jesus walked on water. Would you and I act more like a child if we believe that our Father and King were able and willing to overcome nature and do the supernatural when necessary in order to meet our needs. He heals a man blind from birth. Would you and I act more like a child if we believe that our Father and King were able and willing to open our eyes to see what we can't see and to trust Him with what we don't know? And then finally, He raises Lazarus from the dead. Would you and I act more like a child if, you, if we believed that our Father and King were able and willing to raise us from the deadness of our own hearts, from the deadness of our own bodies, and give us real life? I ask those questions because Jesus says that we're to be converted and become like children. And we've been given the right to live like children. Not children who know it all. Not children who shake their uh, fist in the face of their parents. But when you think about the best of childhood, you think of the best characteristics of children, what kinds of things do you think of? Well, uh, a child, when he's in his right mind, knows he can't do everything. And he knows he needs to look to the one who can. A child uh, doesn't know everything. There was a story about a, a little girl who was praying. And she memorized the alphabet. And so she was praying, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, just praying the alphabet. And a missionary came along and said, Honey, uh, why are you simply repeating the alphabet? And she said, Well, I felt that I should pray. And because I don't know how to pray... I repeated the letters of the alphabet, knowing that the great Lord would fit the letters together to make words out of them. What is that? That's the idea of, I don't know exactly what to uh, ask for. I don't know how to pray. But I know that the one I'm praying to knows exactly what I need. Thirdly, a child lives each day being told what to do. We're talking about little children. We're not talking about teenagers that... We're trying to let them learn freedom and stuff. We're talking about little children. At their best, they know that life is not about deciding on their own at the age of two or three or four how they're going to live their life or even what their gender is. That it takes looking to their parents to know what they should be giving their life to. And then thirdly, a child, when he's in his right mind, is happily dependent. Someone has said, a little child is certain about his parents, but uncertain about everything else. Therefore, it lives a perfectly delightful, healthy life. Now, obviously, that's 
um, looking at it from without uh, the fall and how that picture gets messed up in various ways. But it is talking about the fact that little children, their world, when they have a good father and mother, that's their world. It is their father and mother. And that they are able to, uh, in a very real sense, live happily dependent on their parents. And so when Jesus says that we're to be like children, he's not saying be childish. He's saying be childlike. Be, be someone who recognizes that you don't know everything and you don't need to know everything. Don't we tell our little children, you know, you don't really need to know that right now. Um, little children don't need, can't do everything. We need to recognize that we can't do everything. Um, we need to be um, willing to be told what to do because we don't see life the way we should. We need God to tell us what to do. We need a perfect, loving, heavenly Father and King to tell us how to live this life. And we need to realize that my happiness in Christ is actually a happiness of dependence, not independence. A happiness of dependence on my King and my Father. It says in Psalm 131, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, so my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. So what I'm saying is this. To live like a child of God through faith alone in Jesus is to live with the wonder and carefree heart of a humble child. And to know that not only does God desire your good and and do good to you, but he delights in you and takes great pleasure in you, just like he delights in and takes great pleasure in his son. And he will always and only love you with this supreme love of delight that makes all the promises of God to you sure. And I'm talking about those who have received Jesus as their king. A child at his best is okay with simply doing what he or she is told, especially when life is confusing and fearful. A child doesn't expect to understand everything or figure everything out, but believes the parent knows best. The child depends on the father and mother to protect and provide instead of bearing the weight of that responsibility. doesn't mean they're irresponsible, especially when we're talking about us as adults. But the child enjoys the simple pleasures and can make a gun out of a stick. The child expects things to get better as the future unfolds. Psalm 131 says, hope in the Lord. A child, a little child has a hope for the future. A little child expects to be loved even when it doesn't seem to be happening. It's an amazing thing. They truly expect to be loved. And if you're a child of God through receiving Jesus, you can know that you are being loved. And finally, the little child runs to the parents and finds rest in their arms, and they love the smile of the parent. 
It's interesting to me that it says in 1 John 3, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. You could argue that the life of a child is the gift within the gift of the child Jesus. Jesus became a child who grew up and lived the life we could never live and died the death we deserve to die and rose from the dead so that we could be children so that we could have the weight of the world taken off of us, so that we could have a joy and an expectation for the future, so that we could skip down the road as if we had no cares in the world. The Bible says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Ultimately, this goes back to, and I touched on this, When we talked about the love of God, we mentioned R.C. Sproul talking about a love of benevolence where God has goodwill toward all, a love of beneficence where God does good to all. But there's a love of complacency, and it doesn't mean a love of not doing anything. It means the love of great pleasure. God doesn't have great pleasure in everyone. He does good to all. He desires good for all. but He doesn't have pleasure in everyone. You might remember in Luke 2, it tells us in verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Who is God pleased with? In the context, he's pleased with those who receive the Savior King. God has great pleasure in those who receive his Son. And that's why it says in Romans 8, What shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who is against us? If he did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? We need to believe as those who are Christians, who have trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, that God delights in you just like he delights in his son. Because that's what the Bible says. He takes great pleasure in you. And that is an amazing thing. Truly, truly an amazing thing. C.S. Lewis said, The Son of God became man to enable men to become the sons of God. Have you received Jesus as your king? Have you received Jesus as your king? Because the king is the savior. The king is the satisfier. And it's only as we receive our king that we are saved and we are satisfied in God. And as Christians, are you resting in your king, relying on your king, rejoicing in in him? Are you living like a child that in one sense is carefree? It's easier said than done, but it really is the truth. Close with this, Joy to the World, one of our favorite Christmas song says, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. That's what Christmas is ultimately all about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as your word says, you loved us enough to give us a king who will love us perfectly, who will meet the deepest needs of our heart, who will satisfy the greatest longings of our heart who will fill us 
with joy and peace and love with no end and no limit. I pray, Father, for those here who've never received Jesus as their King, their Savior, their Satisfier, that they would do that today. They would agree with you about their sin. They would believe the good news that Jesus is an able and willing Savior for them. That they would call on you for mercy, Father, and rest in Jesus as their Lord, their King, and their Savior. And for those of us who've already done that, we pray that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, that you would help us to seek to become more like children, children of the King, a perfect King, children of the Father, a perfect Father. And may we find this Christmas to be much more joyful and in a real appropriate way, carefree, than Christmas's past. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.